This is Andrea Buchanan. And I'm Allison Kulo. Welcome to Mountain Money. Every decade brings change, but as Michael McCambridge chronicles in The Big Time, no decade in American sports history featured such convulsive cultural shifts as the 1970s. Michael McCambridge is an author, journalist, and commentator, and joins us this morning to discuss his new book, The Big Time, How the 1970s Transformed Sports in America. Michael, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Good to see you today. Thank you. Well, let's begin. Tell us, how did the topic of the 1970s pique your interest enough to be able to write a book about it? I think anybody who loves sports grows up thinking that the era in which they fell in love with sports was the best time, the, you know, the perfect time, the innocent time. And I indeed grew up in the 70s. But as I grew older and, and sort of looked back on the decade, a couple things were clear to me. First of all, the 70s has this, this sort of subpar reputation. Um, there was a historian who wrote a, a history of the 70s in America, and the title was, It Seemed Like Nothing Happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's obviously the conventional wisdom. But as I learned more about sports and looked back on the decade, it was clear to me that it was a pivotal, even critical decade in moving sports into a more central role in American popular culture. And uh, the reasons were that um, were numerous, but just a, a few of the big ones. Monday Night Football led sports into prime time on network television, leading the way for for more sports to reach bigger audiences. It was certainly an era for em- of emancipation for athletes with the dawn of free agency and athletes beginning to earn money commensurate with, um, with their revenue generating power. Um, it was an important decade for integration. I think American sports was one of the first institutions in the country in which integration became more the rule than the exception. And finally, and probably most importantly, it was a decade that saw unprecedented growth of involvement for women in sports through Title IX and other things, not just as athletes, but as administrators, coaches, spectators, journalists, and that changed the country a lot. Um, that, that's very interesting. The prologue for the book focuses on a made-for-TV event. Uh, I was just curious, can you describe this event and why it's important uh, to the overall book? That event was September 20, 1973, the Battle of the Sexes between the 29-year-old women's tennis player Billie Jean King and the 55-year-old former Wimbledon champion Bobby Riggs. And coming on the heels of Roe versus Wade and the Equal Rights Amendment at a time when second wave feminism was on the rise and women were agitating for equal rights, equal pay, equal opportunity, there was inevitably a pushback against this. And no one represented that sort of retrograde male chauvinism better than the tennis player Bobby Riggs who had beaten the previous number one tennis player, Margaret Court, on Mother's Day. And Riggs was proud of being a male chauvinist pig. He boasted that women belonged in the bedroom and the kitchen in that order. And Billie Jean King, who'd accomplished so much, who'd already worked so tirelessly for women's rights and raising the profile of women's sports, knew that the only way to shut up Bobby Riggs was to play him. And so that night, in front of the largest crowd to ever watch a tennis match, 
in front of the largest TV audience ever for a tennis match at that time. She took him on in the Houston Astrodome. And as preposterous as the event was, and it was clearly a made-for-TV event, it was very important. It was important to women in athletics. And Billie Jean King, I think, entered that match under as much pressure as any athlete you could think of. Because she knew not only if she lost, her career was going to be marked by losing to Bobby Riggs, but she knew that it was going to make it that much more difficult for people to take women's sports seriously. And instead, she rose to the occasion and swept Riggs in three straight sets. And you can sort of draw a direct line from that to the rise of women's sports in the rest of the 70s. And Billie Jean was by no means the only factor, but she was an important catalyst for the growth of women's sports. The book, as we've mentioned, talks about the 1970s and the changes in sports, but I want to go back a decade and talk about what was going on in sports in the, the end of the 1960s, and especially with regards to the thriftiness mindset. Can you, can you let the listeners know where we were coming from? Yeah, I, I think people forget how small time sports was at the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s. I mean... Um, the Chicago Bulls, who we think now is this sort of this national brand. Um, before the Bulls games in the early 70s, the PA announcer, Ben Bentley, would, would say to the crowd, please stand for the national anthem. Then he would move his microphone down to a tinny cassette recorder and play a cassette recording of the national anthem because it was cheaper than hiring a band to actually play the national anthem. So that was, that was sort of the, the realm that that sports was in then. Oscar Robertson, one of the great basketball players of all time, played for the Milwaukee Bucks at the beginning of the decade. His pregame meal typically um, was to send a ball boy out to the concourse, get a couple hot dogs and a Coke, and that was, that was his training table pregame meal. A lot of the athletes, even superior all-pro, all-star athletes, had to work off-season jobs to make ends meet. It was... Um, it was a much more difficult lifestyle then, and it was a much more low-rent proposition, if you will. Well, and so, excuse me, on September of 71, well, first of all, I was amazed that there was not like a major league, you know, uh, baseball, and there wasn't an NFL, and there, all these these leagues and these huge things that we rely on now were not, had not been formed for the most part. Um, but in 71, the Pittsburgh Pirates, the first game in the history of, of the MLB, uh, was was the a game in which the a team was fielded entirely uh, by people of color, and I was just curious how orchestrated was this event and what it signaled for the change with regards to segregation in, spectat in spectator sports. Yeah. Now, just to um, just to clarify, there have, there had been Major League Baseball long before then, um, going back into the 19th century, and the NFL had been around since 1920. But the game you mentioned, that Pirates game in 1971, um, wound up being the first time in Major League Baseball that an entire lineup featured people of color. And going back and looking at that date, it was it was clear that in the moment, um, very little was said about it. Um, one of the Pirates players, Al Oliver, um, was sitting on the bench and, and talking to one of his teammates and said, hey, we've got all brothers out there. Like it had just occurred to him in the middle of the game. Um, when he was asked about it later, the manager, Danny Murtaugh, said, 
you know, we had a couple injuries. We had, we had players rested, but I wasn't making any statement. I was just putting out my best nine players. And that was, I think, typical of, of that era. And one of the abilities of sports is to address directly and so make, make less oppressive the question of race. Um, the idea of sports as a meritocracy allowed African-American athletes uh, of both genders to, um, to excel and gave them opportunities that they were not getting um, at that time uh, and in some cases still in other walks of life. So with regards to the 1970s, this was a piece as I read the book that it made sense, but it, ha it took me a moment to have to think about it. And that being that in the 1970s, primarily in the beginning of the 1970s, sports were reliant on printed media to relay sports scores and news. Like, you didn't have another place you could go look up, you know, how the game was the night before. And sometimes all you got were the scores and not even a, a replay. So how did the push to televise football and move it to primetime, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what that, that, that dynamic was, what they needed to change, and then kind of what that started the ball rolling for? Yeah, certainly. I, I think that, you know, you have to remember the beginning of the 1970s, there was one college football game on every Saturday. ABC had all the rights to college football, and they generally showed one game a week. You know, today, obviously, there are like 50 college football games on, so it, it's, it's hard to explain to someone from this generation how barren it was. But it wasn't just college football. It, there, were, there were typical weeks where... There would be one game on Saturday, Major League Baseball, um, and maybe a golf tournament and wide world of sports, and that would be it. And so the, the job of a sports fan trying to find scores was, was an ordeal. You would have to, you might get some local scores on the nightly news. You might get lucky with finding a radio station that would give updates. But I can remember growing up in Kansas City, if the Kansas City Royals baseball team at a game on the West Coast, I might go to sleep without knowing the final score, wake up the next morning, check the morning paper, and on the front of the sports section, they might have a little box that said bulletin. When the newspaper went to press last night, the Royals were leading the California Angels three to two in the eighth inning. Um, and then I would go to school, still not knowing the score, come back only after checking the afternoon paper when I get the final score of the game story for a game that was played nearly 24 hours earlier because there was simply no apparatus to consistently give scores. Uh, around the middle of the decade, there was an outfit called Sports Phone that um, would record a minute of running scores that people could pay a dime, call in, and get updates, um, which became very popular with inveterate gamblers, of course, but also true believers who were just worried about, you know, how their team was doing or how some other team they were competing with was doing. It was, um, it was kind of a wasteland out there until ESPN started in 1979 and more outlets started developing um, ways to keep people updated on, on what was going on. And today, of course, we can keep up pitch by pitch, play by play on our phones, but it wasn't always that way. 
Well, I was interested. Uh, um, you mentioned Billy Moore in your book, uh, going back to Title IX and the role of female, the female, you know, the the sports, the female sports world. And I was just mm -hmm. curious, um, being from Texas, but can you talk a little bit about who Billy Moore was and what her contributions to women's college basketball, and the role of women in sports overall? Yeah, uh, Billy Moore, I think, was one of the the best examples in trying to tell the story and focusing on uh, on some key figures. Billy Moore was was one of the best examples I could find of, of the growth of women's sports during the decade. She had grown up a tomboy and was uh, in the middle of the 60s teaching physical education at a junior high school in Kansas. And um, this program that was started, the National Institute for Women's and Girls Sports, she had this opportunity to go to this national conference and learn best practices and latest techniques for coaching basketball. Um, she connected there with a woman named Charlotte West, who was the head coach at Southern Illinois. West hired her as an assistant, and Billy Moore went there, coached for a couple years at Southern Illinois, took a job at Cal State Fullerton, and won the very first women's national championship that was five-on-five -five basketball. Previously, um, most women's basketball had been six on six. So she took that job at Cal State Fullerton and continued to excel. And in 1976, when the Olympics for the first time staged a women's basketball competition, Billy Moore was hired to coach the US women's basketball team. And they not only qualified for the tournament, they won a silver medal. And I think that the significance of that, as I, as I read the history, there had been great women athletes before, um, not just Billie Jean King and Chris Everett, but you know you could go all the way back to Gertrude Ederly swimming the English Channel in the 20s, or ice skaters like Peggy Fleming. But that 76 US women's Olympic basketball team was the first women's team that I think the average sports fan could rally around and get behind and was aware of. And that ushered in an era of extreme growth in women's college basketball. And in the next few years, we saw attendance rise dramatically at the University of Texas under Jody Conrad, at um, UCLA, where Billy Moore was hired um, away from Cal State Fullerton and won a national title in 78, at Tennessee with the legendary coach Pat Summit. And that that U.S. women's Olympic team in 76 really, I think, planted a flag and um, ushered in another era of growth. Your book does highlight a number of individuals have, who have made significant contributions to sports, especially in the 1970s. Can you talk a little bit about the role Kurt Flood and Marvin Miller have within changing how much an athlete was worth and their rights? Certainly, I think it's it's worth remembering that at the beginning of the decade, athletes were essentially indentured servants, uh, occasionally well-paid indentured servants, but still bound to um, the team that had their rights or drafted them in perpetuity. And Kurt Flood was the first one to challenge um, that rule, the reserve clause in Major League Baseball. There were similar rules that bound players in basketball and football, and Oscar Robertson in the NBA and John Mackey in the NFL, um, two all-stars in their own right. Around the same time that Kurt Flood was challenging the reserve rule in baseball, challenged those rules in, in basketball and football. And 
when I started researching this book, I couldn't help but notice that in all three of these major sports, the athletes who were willing to risk their careers to fight for some measure of autonomy over their careers were all African-Americans. Um, I spoke to the Hall of Fame defensive lineman, Joe Green, about that. And he said, um, at the time, he thought black players were just more tuned in to issues of freedom and autonomy and choice. And so it, it made sense to him. Um, Flood lost his Flood lost his Supreme Court case, but a few years later, Marvin Miller, the head of the Players Association, won an arbitration case in baseball that led to free agency in baseball. And when that case was won, it really opened the doors. I think it was just a matter of time after free agency came to baseball that it would come to basketball, which took a few years, and it would come to the NFL, which, which took much longer, um, but began to be implemented in the NFL in the early 90s. And those decisions changed the face of sports, but they also, in each instance, meant more money for the players and meant that players would come closer to realizing their true value. Um, and this coincided, to, to get back to one of the subjects we discussed earlier, coincided with the rise of sports and TV, because once sports made it into prime time and became much more common on television, there was a lot more money around and it, it only made sense that athletes earned a greater share. But in the book, you make a case that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, <clears throat> excuse me, is, uh, you know, one of the most talented stars in the sports world. And I'm just curious, I mean, he was one of my favorite players, and I was just curious, mm -hmm. like, what was your, uh, can you share that, that theory with your listeners and what, what made him so in your mind? Well, I think for starters, Kareem had the single most potent shot in the history of basketball. That sky hook was was lethal and for all intents and purposes, virtually unblockable. Um, you know, there were other great shots in basketball, but but they could be nullified through supreme effort and, and Kareem's shot really couldn't. I think the other thing that, that fascinated me about Jabbar, who is um, a terrific writer in his own right, I should say, is I think he was probably the most misunderstood athlete of the 1970s. You know, he, he followed in the footsteps of Muhammad Ali and just as Muhammad Ali had changed his name in the 60s, um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, after the Bucks won the NBA title in 1971, announced that he was changing his name from Lou Alcindor. And uh, I think Jabbar would be the first to say that all the, all the conflict that Muhammad Ali dealt with, all the criticism he took for adopting a Muslim name made his own name change easier uh, a few years later. At the same time, um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar uh, observed a much more traditional form of Islam and was a much more um, conventional follower. And I think he, he pretty clearly thought that the nation of Islam and its leader, Elijah Muhammad, whom Muhammad Ali was so devoted to, he thought that was sort of a scam. And while he certainly respected Ali, he, he did not respect um, the nation of Islam. And that put him in a very, I think, awkward situation because probably the average sports fan in the 1970s conflated the two. They just thought they were two militant um, black athletes. And um, that was, there was a real price that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar paid for that, um, which we saw later in the decade when a, a home that he had bought 
with people he knew and cared about um, was invaded by was invaded by this uh, sect that was connected to the Nation of Islam and these people that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had spent a lot of time with were slaughtered in this mass murder and for the rest of that season and into the next season um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and the Bucks went around um, with like FBI and other additional security just to protect them. It was a really fraught time. And yet through that, he sort of stoically continued this pattern of excellence. And I think Jabbar was not fully appreciated until he became sort of this elder statesman on the Los Angeles Lakers into the 80s. But the, the 70s was truly a difficult decade for him. As we get close to the end of our time together, I wanted to just have you bring us back to a little bit of what Andrea was starting to talk about with regards to the different types of associations that were forming in the late 60s and the 70s, like the American Basketball Association, the World Hockey Association, and the World Football League. What was causing these upstarts to gain traction, and did they all remain? Um, they certainly didn't remain, but I think the thing that caused them was the success of the American Football League, which started in 1960 and merged with the National Football League in 1966, creating the necessity for the game that we know today as the Super Bowl, um, I think gave a lot of young sports-loving entrepreneurs hope that, that anything was possible. And, and so over the course of the 70s, nearly everything was tried, right? You had the American Basketball Association, which started in the late 60s. You had the World Hockey Association challenging the NHL in the early 70s. You had the World Football League challenging the NFL in 73. And in each of these cases, there was no market testing. There was no real genuine business plan. It was just guys in suits going around and asking other guys in suits, would you like to own a sports team? And um, at that time, there, was, there were enough foolish guys in suits <laughs> who did that. And um, I think in each of those cases, you had, a, you had a difficult economic environment in that period in the 70s. And you also had um, trouble getting a foothold without having a national TV contract. The World Football League sort of had it through syndication for one year, but the WHA never had a national contract. The ABA never had a national contract, and that was one of the things that led to the demise of those leagues. The 70s, I think, was the last decade where it seemed like anything was possible, and you could have these, these ludicrous things like, um, let's start a co-ed professional volleyball association, which was also um, tested in the middle of the 70s. And Billie Jean King, among her many other um, endeavors, launched World Team Tennis, which was a co-ed team tennis format, which was actually pretty interesting, but probably started too soon um, and was also um, hampered by the inability to get to get a real widespread national TV contract. But it was it was a fascinating decade for for all that was attempted. Well, we have been spending our time with Michael McCambridge, the author of The Big Time, How the 1970s Transformed Sports in America. Michael, thank you for spending time with us on Mountain Money. Thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed it. So Saturday, uh, November 25th, is Small Business Saturday. It's a day to celebrate and support small businesses and all they do for their communities. 
It was founded by American Express in 2010, and Small Business Saturday has become an important part of the holiday shopping season. It is um, Small Business Saturday is spending nearly 32 million independent small businesses was projected to reach 17.9 billion in 2022. So okay. <clears throat> Kathy Corman Fry is an industry instructor of entrepreneurship and the director of the Center for Entrepreneurial Excellence at the George Washington University School of Business. She helped develop and currently teaches women's entrepreneurial leadership at George Washington. Fry, Fry is the founder of the EdTech social venture, The Hot Mamas Project, the world's largest women's case study library, providing access to diverse, teachable, scalable role models and mentors from around the world. Kathy Corman Fry joins us this morning to give us a deeper perspective on the importance of shopping at small businesses this Saturday and all the days of the year. Welcome, Kathy. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. Well, you um, you have done some really important work, and I'm just curious. Can you explain to um, to our audience what role entrepreneurs and small business owners hold in our communities? Oh, sure thing. Well, first of all, um, when you look at things like the census, uh, for anybody who wants some nice bedtime reading, mm -hmm. uh, basically about half of the workforce is employed by small business. So we have quite a large impact nationally. And locally, shopping small business has become uh, beyond trendy. It's vital because of the amount of money that stays in the communities when we shop with local businesses and small businesses. Kathy, can you take us into that a little bit more and explain maybe a little bit more in detail how that money that's spent once in a small business continues to be spent throughout the community? Sure. And some of us may have heard the term, the multiplier effect. It's a, it, it, it just is very common sense, right? We can just sort of see spokes radiating, radiating out from a hub. And, and that's what happens when you spend money in uh, your community with a small business, a huge percentage of those funds stay in the community, meaning they will go to programs, schools, families, etc., the things that we care about in that community. So we have almost 70%, about over two thirds, in fact, stays in the community for every dollar that you spend. So that means about 68 cents versus 30 or 40 cents, 30 or 40% of every dollar when you shop with a big retailer. I was surprised that 61% um, of Americans plan to get gifts on Small Business Saturday compared mm -hmm. to only 50% who are likely to shop on Black Friday. I was like, that's amazing. Um, yes. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And also there's Cyber Monday, which is the bigger blowout uh, shopping day, apparently. I think it's, it's surpassed mm -hmm. Black Friday. Mm -hmm. um, but that was, that's good. That's really good to know that, uh, you know, more than half of the population is planning to spend their time on a, in a small business on Saturday. Yes, it, it is fantastic and it's great to see. And I think there's several factors converging. So one of the things that we know, uh, one of the highest percentages that we've seen from surveys on this topic is that about 80% of consumers feel that by shopping with small business, they're supporting their community. And it turns out the research shows that's right. Uh, so they're right on track with that. The second thing is uh, we see Gen Z moving into the realm of actually spending money and they 
want to do well and do good. So we see some of those Gen Z dollars come in. They're not the highest level of disposable income, um, but it is a factor. And then last, I would say, I would call it coming together, um, almost a kind of collective consciousness or social consciousness, that sort of thing where you want to be part of your community. We've been through a lot. Uh, over the last couple of years with COVID and the surprises and the world events keep coming. And it's those times that just from a psychological comfort standpoint, uh, people want connection. They want to really think about what matters to them. And we see those values playing out in rewarding small businesses in our communities with our dollars um, and our thoughts because frankly, small businesses have been struggling. We all hear on the news uh, the types of things that large businesses are dealing with as well, which is how to retain the workforce. Um, after the great resignation, many retailers were left sort of holding the bag, getting through COVID. Did we have enough cash on hand? Did we have to go out of business? Are we still struggling to make our money back? So we as community members want to support the recovery which is still happening. So all of those things are coming together and I'm sure your listeners are throwing in a couple uh, opinions of their own. You know, here's why I would like to support a small business or here's what I see in my community. And those would all be true. It's really just that they're happening at the same time. I think it's interesting, as you said, that there's been, uh, and there's a starting of a cultural shift. As you said, like Gen Z, they're not the, they don't have the biggest and deepest pocketbooks, but they're they're really, making efforts about talking, you know, by spending, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. where are they spending their money? And that's their voice. When you start to look at that, especially being an educator and um, teaching entrepreneurship, are you starting to see that mind shift um, come in as people, as that generation becomes entrepreneurs themselves? And if so, what kinds of things are you seeing them? How are they approaching business differently? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a great um, point you bring up, and I do see this in the classroom. So because I teach entrepreneurship at GW's uh, School of Business, we're the first experience many students are having with entrepreneurship. We've got students from all over the school, uh, not just the business school. I'd say maybe half my, my students are from the business school. Others are from engineering, from international relations, uh, from the Corcoran School, getting their degree, Masters of Fine Arts or Fine Arts degree. So we see a lot of diversity in the classroom, but we see a commonality on this point that you're talking about, Allison, which is uh, doing well, and doing good at the same time. And it's moving beyond what I would call, uh, you know how when you're first in college or out of college and people sort of do the insert eye roll like, mm -hmm. oh, this generation, right? I mean, it happened to my generation, it probably happened to your generation. Mm -hmm. But what we're seeing is increased sophistication in really putting teeth behind that mantra of doing well by doing good. So for example, just this past year, uh, all the students in many of the entrepreneurship classes at GW have to develop a venture as part of class. It's not a separate sort of DIY activity. And uh, one of the, we, we have a competition. Uh, the students win, they get, you know, thousands of dollars in prizes. It's, it's very rewarding for the students. And the top student teams all are doing well by doing good. And I can go into more detail about, you know, who the top winners were in this competition we just had earlier this month, but they follow that theme that you just brought up.
let's have you dip into a, a few of those those companies and, and give us that perspective. Okay, perfect, because I love to brag about my students, and I'm really excited about the ventures this year. So we have a couple different stages at GW now because we have a very healthy and active ecosystem for entrepreneurship at the university that's not just out of the business school. It's all over the school. We've got social entrepreneurship. We have a central office that runs key events. We have it out of the engineering school. It's really fascinating to watch. So we see the convergence of that in our classroom when students are, look, essentially they're forced to do a venture. But by the end of the semester, they're incredibly happy that they did it and participated in the competition. So number one winner of our Pitch George competition this year was an app that uh, essentially makes life easier and streamlines the experience for family members and individuals who are dealing with substance use disorders. And this is an MBA, uh, somebody who's finishing their MBA at GW. They also have their medical degree, they have their MD, and they also have two master's degrees from Columbia University and Johns Hopkins University. And so it's just amazing to see um, that, you know, the brains at work behind solutions that are going to help us all uh, in our country and, and even globally. We have a, our second winner was a media company targeted towards Gen Z to reduce polarization and really increase unity through fair and sort of community rules led discussions and sharing of content and information. And then uh, one of the final winners is a credit card which helps Gen Z with financial planning and investing with this extra percentages that they might be getting cash back. Uh, instead, they're investing that for them. So these were the top winners this year. And there's always an undercurrent of how can we help, not just how can we help our bottom line. Well, that that is very promising for our future. Um, GWU has the largest percentage of women MBAs, is that correct, of any university mm -hmm. in the United States? And I was just curious, what's drawing students to this program? I mean, it sounds like you just highlighted some of what that is, but um, and what's the multiplier effect of this throughout yeah. the university? Yeah, this is a great question. You know, we've actually been leading uh, in this area for a number of years. Uh, so George Washington School of Business has had a larger percentage of women MBAs for many years, while other schools, it's been in the news, you know, this is, this is not uh, a secret. Other schools were really working to attract women to their program, all of which is fantastic. But I remember going to uh, one of our deans years ago, uh, Susan Phillips, who was on the Board of Governors for the Federal Reserve Board in DC, uh, prior to becoming the dean of our business school. And I said, Susan, how did we get such a large percentage of women? Uh, in our school at the MBA program. And she says, you know, I really don't know. <laughs> and so I started looking at some of the demographics uh, for DC. And uh, a lot of it is that uh, in addition to the culture of the university, right, which, which rates very highly on diversity and attractive and on-trend topics like uh, corporate social responsibility, international business, right? These are, these are things that our students are very interested in, but how do we get them there? Well, DC has some sort of abnormal percentages in terms of successful women. Um, we have the highest number of m mom breadwinners, right? Breadwinners in the household who are moms. We have the highest number in the country in DC proper. 
And additionally, D.C. has reversed the wage gap. So young women in D.C. who are working full time actually make a couple percentage points more uh, than their male colleagues. And so this is, is pretty incredible uh, when you think about it because folks have been trying to work on the wage gap and closing the wage gap for a long time. And D.C. has done it. And then we are lucky in that we have access to these extraordinary uh, students who want to come get their MBA, sometimes while they're working, sometimes full time. We, we have a mix. I, th I think it was interesting. Um, you know, you had mentioned that those statistics are abnormal. Whenever I hear, hear the word abnormal, I think of negative. But it's not necessarily oh, yes. a negative statistic at all. Um, it's not. <laughs> and one thing I just want to interject here is because we have to think in a slightly disruptive way in the women's leadership area. And so I really like how you pointed that out. It reminds me of this term we use in my women's entrepreneurship class. We'll put up some research and then we'll say, let's break the research. Mm -hmm. and, and then we start delineating things that the students can do. Um, and they now know this information and can go out into the world and help to, uh, I, I think, I don't say work against anything, uh, but they really are well informed to help lead when they go back out into the world into their organizations, whether it's a pre-established organization or they're starting an organization. Mm. So that's just one of the multiplier effects that you were speaking about earlier. That's a good one as well. As we get towards the end of our time, I wanted to just you know bring this up because when we talk about Small Business Saturday and there is tons of community initiatives, there's flyers and store windows, we hear things on the radio about it. Mm -hmm. I always think, you know, shopping small means shopping local, but that's not necessarily always the case. Can you just talk about how shopping small everywhere is important? Yes, 100%, and I'm so glad you brought this up. Um, there's some folks who are in rural areas. Uh, there are some people who might be disabled and have mobility issues, but you know what? they can put up a store online. And so let's focus on small everywhere and not just small in our community, if that is something that works for us. We've got a number of students who have come through our program, The Fearless Artist, which helps underrepresented artists get commercialized. You can shop on their site right now. Gaucha Chica, which is inspired by this founder's Argentine heritage. Viva Vita. If you have a senior citizen in a retirement home, it may very well be that they are having incredible virtual reality activities, taking them all the way to Paris in 1940s, to on a walk in the park thanks to Viva Vita's technology. There's Brand Capture, which helps Etsy artists market their work. And then we have Clebby's, which won every contest known to man in GW and will probably be coming out west soon. But you can support all these young students and you can match your particular shopping list, no matter how unique it is, with a small business in all likelihood, thanks to the advent of incredible technology allowing us to shop online, ranging from Shopify and others. So I hope that we do get some additional folks thinking about shopping small, whether it's in your community or online, after your segment today, which is just such a great topic, and I'm, I'm really glad that you introduced this. And we've been speaking with Kathy Corman Fry. She's an industry instructor of entrepreneurship and the director of the Center for Entrepreneurial Excellence at the George Washington University School of Business. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us on Mountain Money. Thank you for having me.
Starkutsky was born in February 2021 uh, during a harrowed time of in-lodge dining reservations, price increases, single-use plastic excess, and limited seating. So joining us this morning are the women whose idea launched a new lifestyle and local business, E.J. Elliott and Kira Bazzuti. Welcome to Mountain Money. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So let's start, take us to the day where charcuterie became something. What did you pack and how was the lifestyle born? My friend Jesse was out visiting from Colorado and he said, I've had this epiphany. We are going to put some food in our backpack and we are going to have a picnic on our skis in the middle of the woods. Uh, we packed a toasted grilled cheese, or sorry, toasted PB&J, which is very innovative, hadn't had that before. Uh, that was exciting. We had goldfish, we definitely packed cuties. Uh, those are a staple. Um, and just kind of a hodgepodge of whatever we had laying around. And we went to Centennial Trees and we set it up and just had a blast. We brought a little speaker, made sure that we were you know, visible from everyone around us. And we sat out in the woods and enjoyed the sunshine and talked to each other and you know, didn't have to worry about sweating in the lodge or when you get that humid, you know, glaze on your on your goggles or anything. And we were just able to continue to enjoy our day in such a different, innovative way than what we had previously done. Mm. Very nice. Um, so tell, exa explain exactly how it works. What, what do you guys, what's the service you provide and how do I find it? Because it sounds delicious and amazing. <laughs> so sh everyone can do charcuterie ski on their own. Um, what we provide as a service, well, uh, two services really is, one is a setup. So if you have, you know, a private event that you'd like us to go and set up the charcuterie ski at, we'll take the orders, get any dietary restrictions um, and go in and set up the charcuterie ski for you, clean it all up. Or if you're interested in taking a pack out with you somewhere into the woods, uh, we're working with local vendors in order to create these uh, boxes. We're currently beta testing different materials because we'd like to be sustainable and not use um, anything plastic and working with that. So we'll give you a pack or a charcuta pack, we call it, that will fit in your backpack that you can just take out uh, on your own. So with that, um Tell us some of the items that maybe you've evolved from uh, with the cuties and the goldfish to the and the and the grilled PB and J. What types of items now are provided within those packs or within the service where you set it up on Mountain? Mm -hmm. I personally think that a mozzarella ball is a necessity. Uh, Bellavento is one of my favorite cheeses. They do a lot of different uh, rind rubs. So EJ's favorite is the Merlot. My favorite is the balsamic. Uh, they also have a garlic and herb. That's fantastic. We like to uh, shop out of the $5 bin at uh, the, as Smith's calls it, the Cheese Island, which is just a fantastic name for anything. And <laughs> we, um, so we'll go in the $5 bin because it's just stuff that they can't make a full wedge out of. Um, and you can just try so many new different types of cheeses. Um, and then EJ loves spec, so we always bring spec. Um, and my favorite cracker is called Le Petit Toast, and it is absolutely fantastic. Uh, they're just little crispy breads um, that you can throw anything on top of. Havarti is also a staple that we use, but we really like to just kind of use whatever we have. So we'll go to the grocery store and grab a handful out of that $5 bin, and then you know, the, for when we uh, charcuterie ski on our own, we just kind of 
okay, I have half a bag of goldfish and <laughs> we're going to take these goldfish out. So just, you know, using whatever you have. I personally am a lot more inclusive about the items that are allowed on a charcuterie ski. We have had a lot of contention over whether cupcakes can or cannot be allowed on the charcuterie ski. Uh, the the following, the community is pretty split on that one. It's, it's quite serious. And... Um, but with regards to the packs that we provide, um, we'll generally do uh, two or three cheeses, two or three meats, a few crackers, and then a jam, olives, a few accoutrements. Um, but we always try to uh, make everything as tailored as we can. You know, sometimes you have a dairy-free group. Sometimes you have a gluten-free group. So you have to be very conscientious about what we're providing. I want to go to a point that you had said, the community is divided among this, because that's really where this started. Mm -hmm. You took this out, you had a pack, and then you started spreading the idea without a business kind of necessarily maybe in the back of your heads. Tell us what forms of social media you used and how you started garnering this community. Mm -hmm. That it so much of it happened with, as you just said, no intention. Like it just kind of came to us. We had um, so one of the first things that we were actually paid to do was a sponsored post on Instagram that a charcuterie company reached out to us. It wasn't something that I had considered because that's for the Kardashians of the world. And, you know, it's just I never thought that our following would be enough. But um, building the community and watching that grow has just happened so quickly and so organically that it just shattered all of my expectations. I mean, when we started the Instagram account, it wasn't, it was kind of as a joke. My, we had the first day that we went to Deer Valley, we had all posted it on our original stories and my cousin reached out to me and she said, this is serious. Like this could be something serious. You guys should make it an actual Instagram. I was, okay, Carly, <laughs> whatever you say. And we did. And within the day we had a hundred followers within a week, we had a thousand followers. And within two weeks we were getting people submitting their own charcuterie skis from the other side of the country. So it just, it was such a whirlwind. Um, the first charcuterie skis that we set up were you know, bachelorette groups and uh, people on there who were celebrating their engagement reaching out to us and asking them to do it. And I was like, uh, yeah, and I think we should roll with this. <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool. So so it's a, it's a community-driven business. So you're on Instagram. How many followers do you have now? 18.6 uh, thousand. That's mm -hmm. big. That's big. Amazing. <laughs> so you're getting, re people are reaching out to you to, to advertise and, and that's how social media businesses work, correct? Explain that business model if you would. Yeah. So it started obviously with social media. It always starts off as something fun and something that we just thought was creative and wanted to share. And then as we started to reach out to more people and more people wanted to be involved and we started exploring these options basically from the community that was interested in it to begin with you know how can we get involved how can you help us like what sort of innovation there and i think something that's very interesting with social media is this idea of community-based projects and community-based ideas and you helping someone else out and i think that was the whole purpose is it's not you know just us it's you know someone reached out from a wax company they're like we're interested in partnering with you guys because you guys seem like the same sort of idea it in some instances is almost like dating a social <laughs> media thing where you know you're you're trying to understand what their values are if you match the same values and if you guys can collectively come to something together and so we've had certain partners that we've worked really well together and i think that's really how social 
social media businesses sort of grow is this idea of you can be a part of something and someone else can be a part of you. It's this whole idea of sharing a value basis that becomes sort of an entrepreneurial spirit in in a way. I think that's the best way I've ever heard it explained, which is great. I want to go back to something that you said. This started off as something fun. Is it still something fun? It still is something fun, but it's not just fun. I still do enjoy it, um, and I love going out into the woods and finding you know, a great place with sunshine and with great views that you can go and set up and just hang out, you know, dig a little chair in the, in the snow if you, have, if you have some fresh snow. And it is still very much fun, but you know, business is business, and you got to take off your fun hat sometimes and actually do the things that maybe don't... Like this is very this is nerve wracking for me. Like, <laughs> and the doing these promoting. types of things, yes. yes, promoting myself, promoting my business. These t- things terrify me. Um, so there is an element of getting outside of my comfort zone, um, which you know, if I was if I was younger, I would say that that's fun. But I'm old now and boring, and I don't like doing it. <laughs> so back to fun. When I started thinking about this idea and I looked at your pictures, I'm like, okay, how much width do you really have on a ski? You know, how many millimeters, centimeters are you working with? You know, do you ever wish maybe it was a snowboard themed idea so you have more space to work with? Have you worked on a mono ski, which is wider than a normal ski? Would do you have any regrets? <laughs> so the way that we always put it is it is called charcuta ski, but they're also called ski resorts. So we don't ever <laughs> limit ourselves. We don't ever limit ourselves to just a ski. We've often worked with snowboards. We've worked with one of our friends has a mono ski. We've done that. I typically ski on blades. So we've done that as well. And from a design perspective, this coming from you know, my backgrounds in architecture, not having constraints is often a bad thing. And working within these constraints allows some sort of creative ingenuity in a sense that you don't necessarily see if you're like, okay, I have this big open table that I have to shut up a whole charcuterie board on rather than I have this limited space. This is the people that I have, how I can creatively put all this food in a way that fits enough people, but also is something delightful to look at. And so we don't ever have regrets with the wits. We do say that if you're going to go with a big group, maybe put a couple skis. If you're going to go, you know, with a small group of people maybe only put it on part of the ski it's this whole design process that's i don't think there's any regrets in that that's Mm -hmm. great well we have been spending time with ej elliott and kara pizzuti they are with charcuteski check them out on instagram and find out more about their business thank you so much for spending time on mountain money thanks Thanks for having us you've been listening to kpcw's mountain money if you like mountain money let us know please leave a review